0: Hello there. Today I'm going to read some, well, the entire short story that I've written all about a fellow called Chester. It's called The Life of a Fellow Called Chester. And uh, let's begin. It will be illustrated with some music and some paintings. Chapter 1. A Day in the Life of a Fellow Called Chester. Chester Witherington was content. As he sat down to breakfast he reflected on his life. He was content at least in so far as he had nothing in particular to complain of, and moreover, he was content in so far as he had obtained such things as are supposedly requisite in the attainment of a happy life, viz., he had a job everyone told him was a good one, a house, a wife, some friends. Everyone told him they were good too. The conclusion of the introspective breakfast, nevertheless, was that he was not happy. He considered the difference. He took happiness to be some kind of joy or some feeling of fulfilment and purpose, of having done something or of having something to do which was worth doing. He took contentedness to mean that he was fine, he was okay, with no problems. He had the things that he wanted to have. The scariest thing of all is having the things one believed would make one happy and still not feeling the happiness wash over one. Such was Chester's situation. He'd woken up on time, regulated as always by his alarm, had gotten himself out of bed, taken a shower, and gone down to breakfast. His wife had done the same. He wondered if in so doing either of them had achieved anything. This morning routine, the completion of which formed the standard opening of every day without ever being questioned, seemed to set the tone for the banality of the rest of the day. He poured himself another tea. Today he drank a Lapsang Souchong. He liked tea. He ate his porridge, replete with honey and a four-seed mix, washed his dishes, kissed his wife goodbye in the usual manner, and headed out to work. His wife would soon do the same. Chester had left his nicely decorated square box room in his beautifully and well kept square box house that he lived in to get into his average square box car and travel to his odious square box office building. Today he would work his usual job in the usual way. This job, the time spent in the doing of which was, he felt, wasted, was something he, sim- he did simply because he was supposed to do it. He did not enjoy it. He wondered if he was even meant to enjoy it. He supposed not. The concept was foreign to him, and he reflected that such reflections were a waste of his time. He drank some more tea in the office canteen, but it was inferior to his own teas at home. His colleagues would arrive with expensive coffees from nearby coffee shops. They did this because they did not know the value of money. Chester had no interest in them. Second, we're almost finished with chapter He also had no interest in his job. He might equally well pass the time by talking to and observing his colleagues as he was doing his job. He got paid for working, of course, but not enough. It would never be enough because he didn't want to be there. He felt he was prostituting himself, renting his time out to someone he ultimately despised. Good morning, Chester. How's it going? He looked up. Colleague number 14 had asked him how he was. Not too bad. Yourself? I'm good. Just working away as usual. Doing much this weekend? Nah, probably nothing special. You? Same, same. Well, i better get back to work. Chester reflected on the fact that this conversation had been a waste of his time under all possible criteria. It had also been a waste of colleague number 14's time. Precious or otherwise as it may be. He wondered why she bothered. Within the span of the next couple of hours, Chester had almost identical conversations, almost exactly the same, word for word, with colleagues number 1, 5, and 11. He wondered why they bothered. It had been a waste of their time, precious or otherwise as it may be. He did not like colleague number 14, nor did he like colleagues number 1 or 5. 11, he had no strong opinion on either way. He went to the canteen for another cup of inferior tea. He sighed. Once back at his desk, he settled in to do some actual work that killed a good 30 minutes. He could ascertain the real purpose behind this work. He went to the canteen for another tea, stopped off to use the bathroom on the way there. This was exactly how Chester passed his days in work. All the same, doing a little bit of pointless work for a little bit, pointless money, and pretending to care about whatever pointless things his colleagues spoke of. He went home. He had not achieved anything today, but then nor had he expected to. He cooked a passable meal for his good wife and himself. They enjoyed the repast, watched some television, and went to bed. The meal had been adequate, the television programs had not. He kissed his wife goodnight, and went to sleep. This was exactly how Chester passed his days. All the same. He wondered why he bothered. And that is chapter one. Chapter two Running in the Dreamscape. And here we need a song clip. I paused to find the requisite clip, and here be it. Am, and now I'm running in the It's a six-minute song you don't hear it all. Okay. Running in the dreamscape. Penny was lying in bed, trying to fall asleep. She was lying beside Chester. She wondered if there was any way she could help him. They were in love, always had been since they met, and she knew she was one of the only things keeping him going. But she also knew that he wasn't happy, not with her, but with life in general. In so far as she could make out, there was nothing wrong with his life. And yet, there seemed to be some kind of emptiness, something missing. She wondered if they should try again to have children. Would this bring some purpose into their lives? Or would it be breaking the Kantian rule by treating persons as a means to an end rather than as an end in themselves? She put her arm over Chester and drifted off asleep. She dreamt of happier times. Although, really, that which she dreamt of was exactly... That which they already had, but with Chester being happy. They strolled along the promenades, and for this we have a painting. We have her strolling along some promenades. Parisian style. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I've lost my place. Yes. strolled along the promenades, stopped off for some ice cream, hand in glove, the occasional... Peck on the cheek. Now and then they pause to make eye contact, touched his cheek, he pushed her hair behind her ear, share the moment of love together. And there is a second painting for the nice times that they are going to spend here, these nice, somewhat Parisian times. Chester reached around her, clasped his hands behind her back, swooped her up off her feet, and spun around while she laughed. They smiled at one another. This was a moment of joy, a moment of Parisian-esque ecstasy. Next, she was at home, having arrived before her husband after a day in the office. Chester came in jauntily, gaily, with a smile on his face, gave her a kiss, asked how her day had been, and made some tea. He chatted, sharing work-related anecdotes and love-related smiles. Penny walked over to their vintage, refurbished, limited edition, 1960s Apollo record player. She selected a Count Basie vinyl disc, pulled a lever, and watched the record drop down and the needle swing into place, The classic jazz sounds filled their home. Chester took her hand in his, and they danced and danced, laughing, smiling, spinning, hugging, now she's guests over for dinner, two friends of hers, had cooked with her, preparing the dishes together. They all four sat together under the dim light of the candelabra, gossiping, catching up and tasting of the many small plates they had prepared. These were such ingredients as a mether as a merry gathering consists of. They were happy to be together and happy in their lives and in their friendship. These were such intangibles as a mether as a merry gathering consists in. Later, Chester and Penny were alone in bed. Their blood-red satin sheets clung to their sweat-soaked bodies. They lay together, locked in the embrace of infinite connection. Penny rested her head on Chester's chest while he stroked her hair. They had made love passionately, passionately, brutally, yet lovingly. They were tired, satisfied. They were in love. Nothing else existed in the world at this moment. I'm going to quote a friend of mine, Wiggly, from one of his poems now. The universe opens itself to us from the smallest is conceived, the infinite. They will live on forever in this moment. And this moment will never die because it does not exist. Penny sees herself alone at night in her pyjamas. But she sees Chester up ahead, running. Frantically, he runs. He screams. She screams. He trips and falls. She runs to catch up, but he's up again. He turns to her. She runs with all her might, but she gets no closer. He silently shakes his head. He takes one more step. He falls into the abyss, into Tartarus, into the dark void of the night. Not quite relevant, but I see him doing this scene kind of running in the forest. And I have this, which is the closest that I can I get. You see her up in the distance there as well. Okay. Penny wakes up, dripping with sweat. Chester is lying beside her asleep. The joyous moments of ecstasy do not exist, but nor do the horrifying moments of despair. The balance is a fair trade. Penny cries herself to sleep, once more to run. In the dreamscape. Next chapter. Love is not enough. I had an old so many years ago your love is not enough. I don't need to play it. It wasn't very good. It wasn't that they weren't in love. They were. In fact she really was the only thing keeping them going. It was just that everything else was empty. There's the neighbor's dog running into our driveway again. Chester pointed out to Penny. Shall I go out? She asked. No no don't worry he's got him. Do you ever notice dogs, though? They just run around, they eat, they sleep, they run around, they get stroked and petted, it's a happier existence than ours, in a way. What do you mean, darling? Well, we have so much going on, don't we? Worries, work, mortgages, expenses, interpersonal relationships, religion, philosophy, flying to the moon, wars, capitalism, we live in artificial cities, it's all nonsense, though, isn't it? Sometimes I just want to get out of it all for a breath of fresh air, but you can't, Orwell reference. Mmm... Look, love, it's always the same with you. The things you say, they make sense, of course, but it's sad. There must be a way to just forget it and go on with your life. Enjoy yourself, pleaded Penny. I know, I know. It's not that I don't enjoy things. I definitely do. I'm thankful for my life with you. Uh, I like our friends. I have hobbies. I have a nice house. It's not that. It's just that even when things are good, they're still pointless, you know? There's just an underlying meaninglessness to it all. Penny sighed and felt sad, sad for her husband. I know. Ultimately, you're right, of course. Uh, But I I do think you'd feel happier if you could find a way to block it out or something. I'll try, he said, while she kissed him on the cheek. Jester went out to work. He sat through some boring meetings. Spent most of his day reading his book. Right now, he's working his way through ethical theory, edited by Russ Schifferlander. I have a copy downstairs. I've not brought it up. It's very interesting. Challenging material, it makes him think, keeps his mind alive, and yet, ultimately, it depresses him. Makes him question why he bothers being alive. He has some tea. Chats with his variously numbered colleagues, keeps those chats to an absolute minimum. Daydreams his way through team meetings and goes home. A day is equally well spent as any other, he supposes. He wonders why he bothers. He arrives home a little before his wife today. He uses this time to enjoy a nice cup of tea and think, really think. He begins to think about ethical theories. He considers the differences between consequentialism or utilitarianism and deontological systems. He considers Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative. He considers also virtue ethics. There might be something in that if it wasn't so vague. Gradually, however, his mind drifts. He realizes that of all these ethical problems, they only matter within the context of our society. That dog from this morning was not worried about it. If we didn't exist, none of it would matter. In fact, even less intelligent people don't worry about it. If anything, they probably live happier lives than he does. Jester concludes that humans are not evolved to a state beyond other animals. In fact, they have devolved, degenerated. It's a mistake. It's not a success. Once a species is able to question its own existence, it's all gone wrong despite his love for philosophy, he realizes that the very existence of the same is the evidence that humans have gone wrong somehow. We oughtn't to be proud. Our successes are nil. We are the world's mistake. He begins daydreaming once more to drift through the dreamscape until he hears Penny come home. He puts some Django Reinhardt Gypsy Jazz records on. I should have brought my records up because I have most of these. Put puts some Django Reinhardt Gypsy Jazz records on and tries to cheer himself up. He greets his wife with a smile, trying to be happy for her sake. Uh, takes her by the hands, they dance and smile and laugh. They kiss, they hug, they make love, they cook together, have an enjoyable evening and they go to sleep. In his bed at night, while he holds his wife, he still can't stop thinking about his conclusions from before. It's not only all pointless, purposeless, it's also a mistake. Sodom's a fun one, but it's nonsense nonetheless. He falls asleep feeling sad. If he visits the dreamscape, he does not remember it. Dazzling lights in wondrous worlds, waiting for the truth to unfurl, echoes of a bygone time, shimmering moon of a night divine. Rapturous envy, ravaging lust, people making so much fuss, stricken by emotions pure, bathe yourself in life's allure. And that is the end of another chapter. Up next, Current Affairs. Have you seen this? A four-week wait to see a doctor? Yes, dear, I know, it's it's gotten pretty ridiculous, replies Penny. And I can't get my... Carpet for the M.O.T. anytime time sooner than the summer. I know, I know, it's the same for everyone, honey, and the post doesn't come as often as it used to, and the bins aren't emptied as often as they used to be, and you can't get speaking to anyone because it's all online now, you can't even get to the bank because the nearest branch is an hour away, I know, babe. And the politicians are at it again, fighting, arguing, getting nothing done, a vacuum of responsibility and accountability. Here we go. Penny washes some glasses in the sink. Democracy, they call it. Humbug. The rich, elite, neo-aristocracy, privately educated, born to rule, raised to egotism and incompetence, evil, arrogant, self-serving, inhuman rubbish. The remnants of the old world. Nearly half a millennium of selfishness, nepotism, and not giving a damn about normal people, and they dare to call this democracy. I'd like to... Chester? Do you know there's not a single public service that hasn't degraded in the past decade or so? The country's falling apart, pen. Penny. Size. I know, babe. You're not wrong. But you really mustn't let it get you so worked up, there's nothing you can do about it. What we really need is another Guy Fox. Mm, well, come on now, let's not go that far. Don't get so worked up about it. It is what it is, and probably what it's always going to be. It's not so bad, really. We We still have good lives. We do alright, don't we, love? We do, we do, Chester admits. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. We can keep to ourselves and get on with our lives. Let's do something fun today. The big walk with the waterfall. Okay, let's do it. Give me half an hour to get ready. Somewhere I probably have a painting of a waterfall, but never mind. They drive for about an hour and arrive at the forest park. It's a long, long walk around the park, but they enjoy it. The day isn't a bad one. How do you feel? I feel good. It's nice here. Peaceful. Like one can finally get away from it all. No capitalism, no politics, no existential dread, just nature, just trees, the chirping birds, me and you. Penny embraces Chester and holds him tightly. I like you like this. I know, honey. I know. Chester goes to pee behind a tree, and when he returns, he can't find Penny. She's hiding. He runs behind the nearby trees and finds her. She runs and he chases her. They both laugh. When he catches her, kisses her. One big, strong, firm kiss on the lips. She leans back against a tree. They kiss, embrace. Just paused and looked down to get this painting, which, you know, goes some way to. Well, the light's shining badly, but to illustrate things. Okay. Now look at that. Chester and Penny look up at the waterfall, appreciating the sublime. This is the real world. This is what it's supposed to be, before we ruined it all. I know, honey, but you know what? At least we can come here and enjoy it still. They hold hands and look around them. The forest, the tranquility of which is just what they needed offers a glance into a better reality. Chester listens to the birds and lets the peacefulness wash over him. Now he really is content. Afterwards, they play some board games at home and share a bottle of Utilraquena wine. Later, they cuddle up in bed. That was a nice day, wasn't it? It was, babe. Why can't every day be like that? Chester asks his wife. Because we have other stuff to be getting on with, I'm afraid. They fall asleep in each other's arms. Tonight, they feel happy. Next chapter Penny, Felicity, Skipperson. 22, this is a flashback. 22-year-old Penny was a happy young lady. She had a good family life, loved her parents and their dog, Mr. Cuddlychops. She had a small but tight friendship circle. She loved going for walks, dancing, reading, painting watercolours, and having friends over for board games and wine. They played Risk and Catan and drank whatever, you know, cheap bottle of wine her friends had found on the way to her house. Penny was fun to be around, always smiling, laughing, had a beautiful, copper-coloured, wavy hair. I imagine Penny, um, like this. Benny was also doing well in her career. She'd graduated a year before, taken on a relatively low-paid graduate-level entry role, worked hard, taking on some extra duties to build up her CV, and a year later had managed to move to another company that would pay her a bit more. She was also a few months into this job, but she loved it. The work was engaging and challenging. Colleagues were friendly. The only negative aspect of her whole life was her love life. During university, she had been dating Gary Spike Tuffman, They'd met in a nightclub and dated for about a year and a half. Things had been fine, but she felt that they were not destined for each other. He really wasn't her ideal type at all. Spike was much too macho. He spent all his time working out in the gym, drinking beers with the proverbial lads, uh, watching a smorgasbord of sports on the television, often, again, with said lads, and working part-time in the garage. He treated her well enough, but he was aggressive with other people, especially any males who spoke with her. In the end, they broke up. She'd initiated, but it was more or less a mutual understanding. He was now already dating some 19-year-old blonde thing in short skirts. Um, despite wanting and perhaps needing it, the breakup still hurt Penny. Breakups are never easy for either party, but uh, she did feel a little additional pain when she saw how quickly he'd moved on. And it's not that she wanted to hurt him or you know wanted him to wallow in sadness. It's just that she thought she'd meant enough... To him, for him to need a couple of months to himself before going in search of the next girl, but apparently not. One rainy day, while sitting in her favourite tea room, drinking Earl Grey, and reading The Woman in White, which I also have downstairs, she met a very handsome young man. Please, no, Thaddeus, come on. Dickens is better than Balzac. They're both great, granted, but there's no comparison. The character work in Dickens is sublime. He is the quintessential novelist. He's also more fun. The wit drips from the pages. Balzac is powerful, but sad. He makes me cry. I know what you mean, man. I I just prefer the sad stuff, I guess. They're both realists, but Dickens is more of a cartoon caricature, whereas Balzac feels gritty and real, moving towards naturalism almost. Hey guys, I hope you don't mind if I butt in, but I I have to agree with your friend there. They're both amazing, of of course, but Dickens is something else. Interrupted Penny. Ha ha! I told you, sir! What's that you're reading there yourself? The woman in white. Collins. Ah, yes. Wilkie Collins. Dickens' deputy. Well, that's not a fair impartial opinion, then, said Thaddeus. Oh, but, but I do love them all, insisted Penny. I always felt Collins was great in his own right, which has never really matched up to Dickens. Oh, I agree for sure, I'm enjoying this book, but it's no great expectations. <laughs> I'd actually wanted to read No Name, but I, I couldn't find it anywhere. You're in luck, I have a copy. It's ancient, falling apart as you read it, but uh, if you treat it gently, I'm sure maybe I could lend it to you. What's your name, by the way? Oh, I'm sorry, my name is... Penance, but I go by Penny. I'm not surprised. And I'm Chester. Enchanté. That had been many years ago. When they'd first met, it was clear from the beginning they had a connection. She very quickly forgot all about Spike. She and Chester had so much fun together, walks on the beach and through forests, murder mystery nights, games with their friends, dancing together, cooking for each other. A year later, she'd asked if he'd like to marry her, and he said he would. And they became engaged forthwith. Next chapter. One small candle. This one requires a song. Let me find it. One small candle in the dark. A flickering light across the night. An echoing silence all around. He's searching, don't give up a we'll fight. Okay. Enough. Jester sits in the living room, surrounded by an echoing silence. Tonight is Penny's night for going out with friends. He'd been listening to a Loss compilation on his vintage record player, but around ten minutes ago the last song had completed, the needle which needed to be had noisily scratched over the old vinyl record and the music had stopped. Now he is surrounded by silence and loneliness. The only light lit is a candle on the little table beside him. He sips an old-fashioned, inhales the scent of the lavender incense stick which burns nearby. He watches the flame flicker and listens to the silence that used to be jazz. He misses Penny when she goes out, but he tries not to show it or think about it too much. He's so very pleased that she gets these fun evenings with her friends. It's important to her and it's good for her. In some ways, he enjoys the peaceful alone time too, but in others he hates it. He doesn't like being alone with his thoughts, which are bound always to turn negative. He tries not to be outwardly needy or allow any suggestion to creep in that he'd prefer to stay home. He tries not to be inwardly needy, feeling lonely, moping around. And then I quote the song lyrics that I just played. One small candle in the dark, flickering light across the night, an echoing silence all around. Keep looking, don't give up the fight. Chester is lost in the small flame, daydreaming thinking about the past and the dystopian future they're headed for. One might even say the dystopian present they're already in. He watches the flame and imagines the whole world burning. He reflects that since the Industrial Revolution, humans have multiplied their population by 500% whilst we've lost 50% of all plant life and 33% of all animal life. Or was it the other way around? He thinks it doesn't matter. Either way, we are parasites destroying our own environment. Not only are humans parasites, we're such a broken, degenerated species. It's all wrong. We weren't meant to live in these artificial cities. We weren't meant to work nine-to-fives in our square box offices, office cubicles. We aren't meant to travel to space. We aren't meant to question our own existence. We aren't meant to invent gods. It's all nonsense. It's all wrong. Not only is it all wrong, it's all pointless too. After three generations, one will not even be remembered. Nothing one ever does will amount to anything, and even if it does, who cares, there's nobody left to judge. We might as well die, or not have existed in the first place. Chester grapples with the philosophical notion that life is intrinsic value, that living is better in some relevant sense of the term, to not living. Uh, But he's unable to accept this conclusion. It's not that he wants to die, of course, he's just neutral about the very existence of his species, and he wonders if we should just nuke the whole world. He realises this would have been untold animal deaths too, but then, you know, after it's done, there'd be nothing left to, to notice or care. Species will go extinct all the time, but last 10,000 years. The Earth has been slowly heating during the Holocene period as we move out of the remnants of an ice age and into a more tropical era. And of course, humanity's helped to speed this up and, and worsen its effects. And, you know, humanity claims that we want to do something about it. Humanity lies. It's selfish. It wants to protect the specific conditions for human life, and not just for human life, but the lifestyle that we currently lead as well. The easy lifestyles. It's all selfish, it's all pointless, it's all nonsense. Just nuke the world. Hey honey, I'm back. How was your chill night alone? Oh, hello baby. I didn't hear you come in. Yeah, I'm I'm fine. Just enjoyed a whiskey, nice whiskey, some jazz records, and had some time to reflect. How was your night out with the proverbial guy? It was great. End scene. Chester's Dream Chester lies in bed in a state betwixt slumber and wake. Heavy sadness closes his eyes and sends him away. Once more he knocks upon the door to the dreamscape. Enter, say the tears of a generation. He makes himself very small and leaps up to the small bedroom window. He jumps out. He falls and falls endlessly until the end of time. He falls through the sky, the air rushes over him as he plummets. He lies flat out like a starfish, but face down, awaiting impact. He hits the ground, but keeps falling. He goes below ground, into the earth, through cartoon tunnels, falling, falling, now he's on a cliff top. He gazes into the sublime. He reaches his arms to his sides, leans forward, and falls. Once again he falls endlessly. Now he's in the ocean. Still falling, down, down, the current's dozing to slow him. He continues to, to lie flat but sink. Down to the depths of the void, he is surrounded by emptiness, and suddenly he is finally seized by panic. In the darkness, he sees it. One small candle. And suddenly, he's sitting in the chair in his living room again. And the next one requires a song clip, so let me go grab it. What to do, it's what because do he doesn't know do. what to do Was in his life, he doesn't do. know what to do, he doesn't know what to what... Enough. He doesn't know what to do with his life. And then I actually paraphrase another song with the first uh, line. Slipping through the shadows of irrelevance, Chester walks down Trist Street. It's spelled triste, Spanish for sad. He nods a neutral hello, the spectres of a past existence. He's just out for a walk, there's no real objective to be met, nor destination to be reached. He calls into a sweet shop for some aniseed imperials. Well, maybe there's one minor objective to be met. Penny loved these sweets, and they're hard to find nowadays. He watches the shopkeeper weigh them out. He's jealous of the shopkeeper's dapper waistcoat and makes a mental note to wear waistcoats more often on his sojourns. He says hello to another old acquaintance of past days and notices a small advertisement in the butcher shop window. Apprentice wanted. Now there we have it. That's a real job. Oh, to be a young lad, apprenticed to a trade. Instead, he works an office job, which in truth he doesn't really understand the meaning of or care enough to try. These jobs inspire nothing other than the lack of ability to care. We live in an utterly false world. It's all a facade. Real jobs can be found in the Happy Families card game. Not these online. Job sites. The worst event in human history was the Industrial Revolution, Jester reflects. It started the perpetuation of the capitalism into the ultra-capitalism we have today. It took people away from real work, moved us into mass employment, into factories, into total separation from the profits of our slave labour in a system which we cannot leave. He wonders if he would prefer all out communism, anarchy, or just some kind of low-level capitalism. After all, the butcher's apprentice is still operating within a capitalist system. He's not enjoying the profits of his work, but then he's training to be a master butcher one day. What Jester really hates are these large companies with hundreds of thousands of employees all being exploited, just like his own job. Day by day, another little piece of one's soul dies. People take pleasure, job satisfaction in creating something. Being responsible for it and proud of it. The master clockmaker diligently building a clock. It's an old story. Everyone knows it. Creating a masterpiece from scratch. Gaining satisfaction. Employee number 314 who puts one cog into a 100 clocks a day. Gets no satisfaction at all. Gets paid very little for his pitiful efforts. And yet it's all fine because the employer is making a lot of money. It doesn't make any sense to Chester. No matter how hard he tries to understand it. They say in the future robots will do these mundane jobs, and 314 won't need to. Which is great until 314's family starve to death for lack of income. The factory owner isn't going to pay them to stay home. He could retrain, but why should he? He didn't ask for these changes to the world. Upskill a nonsense business buzzword of the type Chester hated. It is not real. More and more millionaires than ever before. More people with a milliard, also. He doesn't know what they're called. They're not billionaires because they do not have a million millions. Are they milliardaires? Those of us fortunate enough to be in work are doing pointless work in a fake system, all within the artificially overly complex world that we humans have created for ourselves. None of it consists in the necessary and sufficient conditions for human flourishing. It's all superfluous. It's all embellishment. It's all unnecessary. Chester hopes that the Butcher finds a good apprentice. He wonders what he himself would ultimately do. What does he want to be when he grows up? And that leads me to the next chapter and another song. Just the intro. What do you want to do when you grow up? I want to live in a romantic, quixotic landscape. I want to live in a Renoir painting. There we go, living my life in a Renoir painting. That's the next chapter. He calls into the magic bookshop. Again, I could have brought another painting down of the magic bookshop, but never mind. Embroises some of the vast multitudes of books. Shelves, double shelves, stacked all around the shelves, all up over the floor, all up to the ceiling. Books everywhere in a dimly lit, cold room. He loves it. The, the chap working there plays a trumpet while Chester looks around casting a glance over the many tomes. He usually buys classic literature, of course. But today something else catches his eye. It's an art history book. He thumbs through it and he finds another one, does the same. The works of Bougeroux, of Renoir, of Soroya. He sees the real world, he sees real people, nothing like the world around him, all fake. He's captivated by Bougeroux's printemps and birth of Venus. He studies closely Renoir's luncheon, and Grenouillère, if I can pronounce that properly, and the famous two sisters. He's lost in their gaze. He's reminded of Brad Delp, singing I Will Love You, Renée. He longs to be in this world, sitting on these rowboats, ladies with umbrellas, sitting on the riverbank, resplendent in their riparian entertainments. And I might bring back for a second Trovin, the first picture... (coughs) He finally knows what he wants to be when he grows up. He wants to live in a Renoir painting. Don't we all? Up next, Broken Hearts and Leafless Trees. Uh, this was a, a song title uh, of a band I, I heard and possibly interviewed many years ago. And I do have a painting somewhere uh, of a chap sitting with the moon rays showing in these leafless trees. And he's sitting naked in the street, but I, I can't find it. Anyway. Chester enjoys the crispy sound as he steps onto the autumn leaves. Although we prefer summer ultimately and spring secondarily, autumn isn't so bad really. Winter is horrendous and, and a punishment from the gods. The autumnal colour scheme is a pleasant one, not as vibrant and bright as summer, but the reds and browns and yellows, the warmth of the colours combined with the crunch betwixt leather shoes and the ground, is pleasant nonetheless. The side effect, of course, of the beautiful array of colours on the ground is a decided lack of them on the trees. Death will come, but so will regeneration. It's a kind of human necessary connection. Humans have a two in a grand way. We come from the void and we go back to it. But it also happens inside the details. One of our flaws as a degenerated species is our self-consciousness and self-identity and the importance we place on the same. Just reflects that we are never identically equal to a previous version of ourselves and thus personal identity cannot persist. We are in flux. Change happens in every instant. X cannot step into the same river twice, they say. But it's not because of changes to the river, it's also because X cannot exist twice. An instant later we have X plus one and so in every instant we are born and we die. An endless chain of identities necessarily Leaning on leading on, one to another, like Mrs. Long, so forth. And back to we we cannot die because we never exist. We quoted earlier from Whitley. Okay. And we realise we never die the moment we accept. We did not exist. Chester daydreams about trees. Now in his mind they are utterly leafless. Brown spiky branches against a dark night sky. The silver glimmer of the moon and stars. The trees look sad and cold without their leaves. The landscape is desolate now. In his mind, gone are the people and the homes. Present is darkness, emptiness, perceived lack of meaning, a glaring lack of colour, an imagined lack of purpose in the world. Chester takes it all in, the meaninglessness, the lack of lively vibrance. Earlier the colours have made him feel happy, now he feels sad, desolate. He feels his heart hurt. He thinks about times when he was happy, he feels the tears flow down his cheeks as he cries. His heart, rent in twain by the void he's fallen into, yearns for Penny. Are you all right, mister? Chester snaps out of his daydream to see a young lady and realizes he's causing some small disturbance to the public order. Oh yes, yes, I'm I'm fine, thanks. Just thinking about something sad. Don't don't worry, I'll be all right. I best go home. Are you sure? Would you like to sit down, have a coffee? I guess I can have a tea, I might be persuaded. So they have tea and coffee together, Chester and Madeline, a 20-something university student and artist. They talk about art and about Chester's daydream and his worries in general. Madeline's a caring and empathetic human being. Well, it's been lovely chatting to you, and thanks again for the tea in the caramel square, but I suppose I'd be better be getting back to my wife now. She must be wondering what's become of me. Of course, it's been a pleasure. Here, let me give you my number. In case you need to talk, you can reach out. Thanks. Gives her a quick hug and heads home. The next chapter I believe requires a song again. Suicidal Screams and Shattered Broken Dreams. Ah! Ah! Screams and dreams. Dreams are gone. Dreams are gone. Dreams are gone. Dreams are gone, 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 dreams are gone. I'll let it finish Immediately upon his arrival home Jasper tells Penny about his day Hey honey How did you walk? Enjoy the fresh air And exercise? Hi Pan It was nice The air and the time to think Always does me good And you know, I love to crunch the leaves Between my feet in the autumn (laughs) You do indeed, you're like a child sometimes But it's nice to see you gleeful from time to time You're right I got you the sweetie if you like it the Ah, oh, thanks, babe. Something strange happened, too. What do you mean? Well, I was daydreaming a little bit and getting a little bit mopey, Chester. The walk was supposed to be good for you. I, I know, I know. Autumn kind of gives me mixed messages. Anyway, I was feeling sad, you know, and this of student girl asked if I was okay and ended up chatting over some tea and she cheered me right up in the end. Well, that's fantastic. So you made a new friend. I don't quite know about that. I think she just felt sorry for me. Maybe she's just one of those people that likes to listen to people's problems. I don't know, but she'd, she'd give me her number in case I wanted to talk again. I just took it to be polite. I don't know, ring her. Well, you never know. You, you could use more friends. It might do you no harm. And these students are very bright sometimes. It might be just what you're after. We'll see. Right now, I prefer to find more friends to play board games with us. <laughs> They enjoy dinner together, watch some TV, and then relax. Chester reads more ethical theory texts, while Penny does a crossword and eats her aniseed imperials. They have some records on in the background. Tonight they're listening to a compilation, a 33-inch of music from the Movida Madrileña, an important cultural movement in post-Franco Spain. Chester in particular loved the rock music from that time. Again, I have it downstairs. Okay. How is the empanada, honey? He asked his wife. Chestroot made some empanada gallega for dinner. It was great as always, babe, though. I, I still think I prefer the smaller empanadas, and you know the chorizo is my favourite. Yeah, I know. Perhaps I'll make a batch soon. Tonight I just fancy the big, traditional Galician one. You know, in, in theory I could put any filling in it, too, but somehow I always stick with the tuna in the big one. It was more traditional from the time of Master Mateo, uh, who, who built the great cathedral that we saw in Santiago, of course, with the Bona uh, it's it's grand, it was lovely, uh, I think I'll go on to bed, honey. don't don't sit up too long. I, I want you to come up and cuddle me before I fall asleep. I'll be up soon, love. Chester thought about Penny, but how much he loved her, but how good his life was, yet he wondered why it still wasn't enough to make him happy. There were moments of great joy. He wished he could live perpetually in the aforesaid moments. And yet, for some reason, his mind always clouded over with sadness. He wished he could just ignore it and enjoy his life. He is overcome with a wave of sadness at present when he thinks about the state of the world. He feels like he's been eaten alive from the inside out. He cries silent tears. They fall to the floor like the drops of blood in his bleeding heart. His heart is on fire. And nothing but ashes remain to be scooped out and scattered in the breeze. I think that's paraphrasing another of my songs. Chester takes handfuls of his hair in his hands and pulls them taut, squeezes them, wrings them. He breathes quickly and Heavily, he he runs his hands through his hair, He, he feels the sweat now dripping like the tears and imagined blood before it. He slaps each cheek once, he stands up and walks to the kitchen, he takes two knives from the knife rack, lies on the ground, points them both at his chest, one in each hand, he breathes heavier and heavier, and then suddenly he throws them down on the tile floor and utters a loud yet silent scream. He doesn't want to wake Penny, yet the silence deafens him. Curls up on the floor and cries for half an hour. When he gets to bed, of course, Penny is already asleep. He snuggles up to her, trying his best not to wake her, but wanting to make sure that should she wake naturally later on, she'll know that he came up and cuddled her as requested. Takes him a very long time to fall asleep. He dreams of everything and nothing. Fragments of fantasy and reality spinning hither and thither. Fragments so sharp they cut. Another song quote of one of my own songs. Outside it rains droplets made out of light. What is your folly will be my delight. He's stumbling through rainy streets, bright lights. Climbing a drainpipe that leads nowhere. People shout from unknown directions. Now he sees Penny and his new friend from the coffee shop. Now he sees colours of all varieties spinning and flashing. Now he's lying in a puddle of water. He sees a desk with... One small candle on it. He is hit from all sides by happiness and sadness, by colour and by the void. He cries. Even in the dreamscape, he is broken. This is kind of how I see him. We're about halfway. Mr. Winston P. Fuddlesworth, Esquire. Winston Fuddlesworth is reading the evening newspaper when he hears someone knock upon his front door. Ah, Chester, old boy, how are you? Come on, come in, come in. The inestimable Chester enters his old friend's house. They've known each other for many years, but have, have grown apart in recent times. Yeah, from time to time, Chester calls upon his old friend for a tête-à-tête. Well, what's going on in the papers, Winston? Just the usual twaddle. The world's falling apart, as you well know. I know it only—I t- know it all too well. Only I, I worry that. Sometimes I'm falling apart with it. Let me fix you a Sazerac and we'll talk all about it, old boy. They spend the next two hours catching up on each other's lives. Winston's an old bachelor. He likes to sit inside and with his whiskey and his newspaper or, or, or a book. As much as Chester likes this himself, he also likes to do other things, whereas his friend usually does not. Uh, as such, the conversation is mostly fairly one-sided. Chester told his comrade about the dreams, about the walk in the park and Madeline... By the recent events with Penny, he also complained about work and the world. They shared the same worldview, so there's no real need to go too far back in his explanations. What's all this business about the butcher's apprentice, old boy? I'd never mind about him, whoever he may be. The question is, what do I do, Winston? I feel the world spinning. I feel there's no way to make it stop. I feel submerged in the rubbish with no way to get out. Or, well, again, coming up for air. Of course you do. I I could feel the same way myself if I let things bother me like you do. You're too sensitive, Chesty. You care too much. That's always been your problem. You can't change anything, you know. The best thing you can do is to enjoy your life with that lovely wife of yours. I suppose you're right. It's not that I don't try to put things out of my head. I I do. I I just can't keep it out. It comes flooding back and the dystopian waves hit me and I'm drowning in despair. Anyway, let's have a game of chess before I go. Winston has always beat Chester, and rather decisively too. Chester, however, at least got to enjoy playing with the horsey. Well, I'd better get going, Chester said eventually as 11pm approached. No problem, I'll see you out. Thank you for cheering me up a bit. My pleasure, sir. Call again soon, old boy, and no going after that young girl. Chester drove home and enjoyed an evening cup of tea with Penny, some television before bed. They had a peaceful night full of cuddles and sound sleep. The dreamscape beckoned not. Next chapter. How to be a capitalist slave or not, as the case may be. Chester goes to work as usual. He gives a quick nod hello to his esteemed colleagues numbers 3, 4 and 17 and sits at his desk. He starts up his computer, then goes to the canteen for some tea, narrowly avoiding conversation with colleague number 19. When returning to his desk, he notes an email from his manager, inviting him to a meeting. Nothing to worry about. Seems to be a team meeting. So this leads us to the question, how can we boost sales and increase our profits? Chester, you've not spoken much. Have you any ideas? Nothing, replied Chester. Come on, guys, we really need to come up with something today. Chester, you've got years of experience. Definitely no ideas. What about this new campaign I proposed? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, I found the advertising highly immoral. You want to take people's money. You never stop to think whether or not they can afford it or need the product. In fact, I can't see how anyone could possibly need the product. It's nonsense. I feel guilty asking people to hand over their hard-earned money. Shouldn't they use it to feed their kids, go on holiday, pay the rent? Chester! And another thing. I honestly couldn't care less whether this company makes any money or not. It's not my company. I didn't get a pay rise this year either, so I don't see why it's my problem. I don't see the bosses struggle for once, actually. Chester. In here, day in, day out, wasting my life, being exploited, we all are. Underpaid, stuck in a boring office, finding ways to swindle good people out of their money whilst receiving none ourselves for the work we do. Okay, sorry, I'm done. I'm going for a cup of tea. On returning to his desk, he notes an email from his manager inviting him to a meeting. Something to worry about this time. Chester, I'm I'm shocked at your outburst earlier. I really am. I, I know you've never been the most engaged or enthusiastic chap around here, but this is too much. You asked for my views and I gave them. I find myself morally opposed to this work. In that case, Chester, I think maybe you shouldn't work here. I think nobody should work here, but we all have to pay bills, I guess, says Chester. Chester, for your outburst, I'm going to have to class that as gross misconduct. It's it's harmful to the company image, demotivational to the team, rude, insulting to, to the bosses and to me. Apparently compromises your own ethics, and it's just not professional at all. I've spoken to HR, and you're being suspended immediately for a month from now. We'll talk in a few weeks, and we'll see whether you'll return or not. Suspended with pay, I assume. Of course. Right, Grant, I'll see you later. I'm off to enjoy my month off. Right, at least set up an out-of-office email before you go. Nope, my suspension starts now, I heard. Bye-bye. Later, when she arrives home from work, Penny is surprised to see Chester, already home, reading and listening to Bo Diddley records. I heard that Bo Diddley bought his baby a diamond ring. You're home early, what's up? Uh, yeah, I'll be home now for a little bit, I think. What? Why? I, um, got suspended for a month. What for? Well, they were drumming on about profits and money and screwing people over. I couldn't take it anymore. I told them I don't agree with it all, and they've suspended me for a month. Oh, Chester, for goodness sake. It's fine. It's a paid month off, as far as I'm concerned. They'll hardly sack me over something so trivial. And if they do, so what? I've got a good CV. I'll get another job. I get the union on board with the next meeting and we'll see how it goes. If need be, I'll quit before they find me. No, no, don't do that, baby. I, I know you don't want to be fired as such, but you've been there for years. They might have to pay you off. I, I don't know. Talk to the union. I will, I will in a couple of weeks. So what are you going to do now? Enjoy myself, I suppose. I might even try to write that novella I've been talking about. Good, keep yourself busy. And of course, it'll be good for you too. With me at home, I can get all the housework done while you're at work. <laughs> well, there's a there's a positive at least, right? Should we get started on dinner? Thought I'd make a pasta dish tonight. And next is an excerpt from Chester's own story, the story of the fireflies. In the quaint little village of Splipsplop, the people lived simply yet happily. They made their own food, grew their own vegetables, farmed their own animals, heated their homes with log fires and passed the evenings with stories and sing-songs. It was a good life, a real life. And the fireflies provided the light. Mummy, why do the fireflies give us the light? Oh, I don't know, sweetie, but they always have. When I was a little girl, there they were, lighting up our house. Just like they still do now. They, they clump together in the form of a bulb and sit under the lampshade and fill our room with light so we can see what we're doing. Now, gather up those sewing things for me, dear, so I can mend your cloak. Yes, Mummy. That's a good girl. Mummy, what would happen if the fireflies flew away? I don't know, dear. I expect we wouldn't be able to see anything anymore. We'd be in darkness. But I don't think it's ever happened. Never? Never. Well, no, where. My granny did tell me a story once when I was very little about a time long ago when she was very little, when the Fireflies were gone. I I don't really remember it though, I expect she made it up anyway. What's all this about? All this new technology? All this greed? This obsession with money? Why, we were perfectly happy before. Look at this new machine, it'll do wonders for you. Hourly pay to work in a factory, but I never worked in one before. These guys have destroyed all the land. There's no way to feed ourselves now without a job. Come, buy the latest gadget. It'll change your life. Forty hours a week in a factory. Not enough money. I'm sorry, it's been so tough lately. We'll need more money than that. This is an add-on for the thing I sold you last week. It makes it even better. Oh, don't worry about all those old traditions now. We can modernize this. Don't worry. They want to knock down his cabin now. Why? Why do we need a new road through here? The technology, boom. But but I liked seeing my family all day. Now I've going to work in a factory. We can't afford to feed ourselves. I don't understand how this has happened. School them all together, but they're not animals to be herded into a barn all day. In these turbulent times, I'm afraid I don't have enough money. I I, I never needed much before. We we were quite self-sufficient. Why is everything so confusing nowadays? This is even better than the last one I sold you. But the last one is completely fine. There's there's no need for another. We were so happy together. Why is it all changing? Mummy, look. The fireflies. The fireflies, indeed. They separated from their bulb formation, flew away from the lamp, flew out of the window, and off into the distance, leaving the house in darkness. Oh no, look outside. The skies were filled with them. They were leaving the neighbors' houses too. No more light. No more light, darling. We don't deserve it. Our village has become corrupted. The old ways disappear and we enter a dystopian age. Our souls enter the void of darkness. From now on we will have to live without these kind fireflies giving us light. Forever, mummy? Well, I don't know, pet, for now at least, until we fix things. We've become corrupted, and we don't deserve the fireflies anymore. Maybe one day they'll come back, when the world is a better place, when we deserve to step back into the light. Okay. Shadows of emotion, I think that's another... (laughs) paraphrasing of one of my songs, the shadows of emotion glimmer in the moonlight, love, leading pain, guides her by the hand, to the sea of my soul, and the dead of the night. Anyway, Chester reread what he'd written and, and showed it to Penny. It's not bad, babe, I-, I like the imagery of the Fireflies leaving, and even the basic idea that they provide a light for the village, but it's also all a bit negative, don't you think? Well, I, I mean, I-, I suppose it is, but I'm happy enough with it. Just wish I could pad it out a bit more. Let's work on a nice watercolour cover for it, babe. Oh, yes, smashing idea, Pen. And Chester, you're okay, aren't you? Yes, honey, I'm fine. Let me make us both some tea. He looked out of the window with the pale moonlight, and he waited for the kettle to boil. The moon looks lovely tonight, Pen. I see that. Very nice. Penny approaches him from behind and puts her arms around his waist. They embrace and hold it for a minute. She kisses the back of his neck. And they enjoy the feeling of peacefulness and togetherness. What am I going to do about my job, honey? Well, Chester, I don't know. It's so unfair of them, but you know, you have to keep up appearances at work a little bit. You can't be so negative. I know, I know, he says. Then kisses her deeply and passionately. pulls her in front of him, puts his hands on her back and kisses her more strongly still. I worry about you, babe, but I love you, says Penny. I know. I love you too and three. They laugh, and he goes to make his tea. He pours the tea, and he notices how beautiful his wife is, how kind and supportive she is, and he feels so lucky. He looks out again at the moon. The spectre of love glides effortlessly across the sand. The shadow of emotion glimmers in the moonlight. Love leading pain guides him by the hand to the sea of my soul in the dead of the night. Actually, let's have the song. The love glides effortlessly across the land, the shadows of emotion glimmer in the moonlight. Love leading pain guides him by the hand To the sea of my soul in the dead of the night. The ghost of past love wears the cloak of desire, creeping up but seen unwanted. He stabs me with a knife that sets my heart on fire. Black grows the blood to a human to be. Read. Okay, next chapter. Madeline Hopfilterton. Hopfilterton, that's hard to say. <laughs> this is the friend he met. Madeline was a kind, warm sort of person. This is why she'd helped Chester when he'd come over a little queer in the park. She'd liked him and enjoyed the chat in the end, and so she'd offered to keep in touch Although apart from a, a text or two, there'd really been no further contact. She was curious to meet his wife, though, and she'd like to see him again, so she pondered inviting them both around for dinner sometime. She was up in her messages, specifically the moment in question she was just coming out of the cobblers. Presumably she'd had some cobbling done. In her head, she made little cartoon and turkey-adjacent sounds. Cobble, cobble. She was then attacked Yo, bitch! Give me that handbag. Or you're getting knifed. What? What the handbag? I, I mean, I don't know, bitch. But, but 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 I mean, there's there's not really anything in it. it may, maybe a few pines. Nothing worth stealing. I suppose if you if you if you want it, hands over the bag. But prima facie, there's not a lot worth stealing. Where's the money? I, I haven't got any money. I told you there, there's not. Shut up! Give me your necklace, then. No, no, please. This 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 belongs to my mum. Give it. He tries to grab it and break it off, but Madeline hits his hand away. Right. That's it. And he casually, yet deftly, inserts the knife into her belly. He takes the necklace and runs off. Madeline holds her belly and slides to the ground. Calls for help. But struggles to find the words. She's shocked. She's bleeding. She's terrified. She's later to be found... Propped up against the shop wall, Sans necklace, with the contents of her handbag strewn hither and thither in the grind nearby, and quite dead. Extra, extra, read all about it. Chester opens the morning newspaper and glances through it for the interesting bits. Really, you can't say why he still so bothers to have the newspaper sent round. Checks the news on his phone later on anyway. Today there's an interesting article. Oh my god, Penny, oh my god! Chester, what is it? What's the matter? It's, it's Madeline. You know, remember I told you about the girl who tried to help me in the park? Yes, of course. I was wondering when you were going to invite her around. Well, I won't be. Not now. It, it, she, she's been killed. Stabbed in the middle of the street. Oh, my God. Such wasted life. She was happy and vibrant. She seemed to want to go someplace. She actually wanted to do something with her life. So sad. And that's another friend gone. Well, oh, baby, I'm I'm so sorry. Why on earth was she stabbed? Well, it says they emptied out her, her handbag, so I'm, I'm guessing it was a mugging gone awry. Chester is visibly upset. Penny suggests that he take it easy today to process things. Yeah, yes, yes, I, I think perhaps I shall. He spends a large portion of the day in shock, then in sadness. He can't believe it. He ponders life, death, meaning, meaninglessness. Why is he alive when he is so miserable and someone so alive? Is dead. He cries. He walks aimlessly around the streets of his neighborhood. He feels life is a waste of time for him. But maybe worth something for other people. Three days later, he goes to her funeral with Penny. Dismissed from his situation. Good morning, Chester. Thanks for coming in. No problem. Chester, this is Mr. Gutterfilch from HR. he will be sitting in on today's meeting. Uh, Oh, okay, hi. So I'm sure you're aware why you're here, Chester, the outburst you had. We have no choice but to put it down as gross misconduct, do you understand? Do I? You literally had no choice, eh? Well then I suppose since this was somehow inevitable, you might as well go on ahead. Chester, this is part of it as well, the, the attitude. You either don't speak to anyone at all, or you say something insubordinate and sarcastic. You openly disrespect me and the company. You freely admit that working here wasn't in line with your ethical code, for whatever reason. That makes it rather difficult for us to continue with your employment in light of the way you conduct yourself, even here today. Uh-huh. And what has our mighty HR representative got to say? Old Chessy, no good for this place anymore, is that it? Never mind all the years I've put in here. I sure might as well have gone waste my life in some other dystopian prison. Mr. Witherington says the h r rep you're displaying precisely the kind of behavior my colleague has been talking about. I'm sorry to have to do this, but I'm afraid your services will no longer be required here oh well that's that's fine then, since they're only not required but not actively cancelled. eh, I'd say half the managers around here aren't required either, but they still manage to collect their wages monthly. Chester no, I'm afraid you're you're being discharged you You are dismissed from your situation officially as of this moment. I'm sorry. Oh, well, there we are. Train speeds through the land of dystopia, next stop, inevitability station. I'm only sorry that I gave you an excuse to get rid of me that you're looking for all along. That's not the case at all, Chester. Yeah, if you say so, gentlemen, I'll be off. May you burn in hell. Loneliness in the City of Lost Souls. This one requires a song, but it's in Spanish. Soledad en la ciudad almas perdidas. Soledad en la ciudad de almas perdidas. Soledad en la ciudad. Enough. Loneliness in the city of lost sauce. He'd lost his new friend, he'd lost his job. He tried not to dwell on the negatives. Things were always going well with Penny. That would never change. And of course, he had other friends. Madeline's a, a new friend. Her death saddened him for her own sake. As he walked through the town, the despair overwhelmed him. It all feels so pointless. Life. Living. The whole thing. Especially when a bright young lady like Madeline could be killed. Especially when he could lose his job. Welcome to another day in the capitalist dystopia. He didn't have the corporate yes-man attitude, and that was that. He struggled with his feelings as he wandered around with no real objective in mind. He saw a homeless fellow in a shabby brown suit reading Shakespeare and bought him a coffee and some biscuits. But that served only to add to the meaninglessness rather than detract from it. Into the chemist's shop. Around the park, into the butchers and the fishmongers, never stopping to rest on a park bench. Frantically walking, into the tobacconist, even though he doesn't smoke, into the record shop. Stop by the cobbler's stand. Around and around, there are the shops, there are the trees. Walk around the park, the hour grows late. As he walks around wildly, he feels the futility of it all. Why bother buying smoked haddock when a girl was killed and he can't even afford the haddock without his job anyway? He wanders around, he sees no one, but there are people. He argues later still. The missed calls from Penny go unanswered. He, he feels the selfishness of this. and In the back of his mind, he plans to apologise later for worrying her needlessly, but he also feels the drive to keep going. It's now dark. As he walks around, going nowhere. He suddenly feels alone. He looks for others, and finally he sees people, but it, it, it's late. There, there aren't so many anymore. One girl walking her dog in the distance. A chap making a phone call. Some youths on the other side looking mischievous. An old alcoholic shambling along aimlessly, like Chester himself, you know, in a way, despair, sadness, pointlessness into the void. There are no good citizens left outside now, only lost souls. Chester tries to avoid them, but this makes him feel lonelier still. Tears run down his face as he takes in the situation. I'm just going to remind us of this piece. I think. It's uh, quite relevant now. The alcoholic is talking to the homeless fellow from earlier. The girl walking her dog has long since gone home. The youths are causing trouble somewhere, he expects. The wind brings silence from afar. There is nothing else. There never will be. We are on the go-home now. Up next... Just Another Day. That also requires a song clip. It was just another night when the confusion became too much to fight and a jump from high and make fast right and fall hard. This is my final night. This is my final night. It's an old song. Apologies that it's not very good. Just Another Day. It was Just Another Night. Chester puts down the morning paper. Well, dear, it seems Thistle and Pistle have fallen out with Whistle and are making a pact with Gristle. I don't know why you bother reading that news. It's all pointless. Yes, well, some of us have nothing better to do, being out of work presently. Honey, you will do something productive while I'm gone, won't you? She was going away for a week with some friends. Ah, you know I'll be fine, babe. Enjoy your week away. I can't believe I couldn't go because I couldn't get the time off work. And now I'm fired anyway, but it's too late to arrange at the last minute. Too expensive as well. I know, honey. I know. It's I know it's such rotten luck. I'll work on my novella, and I'll look for a new situation. Now, dance with me, dearie. He takes her in his arms. They dance the jazz records. They feel happy. He does not tell her about last night. Today is just another day. He merely says he went out for a walk to get some fresh air and lost track of time. But he knows she was worried about him, and he feels awful about this. They make love before she goes to work, making her late. And he reflects that after today, he'll be alone for a week. He does not like his own company. Alone. I think we're going to put the uh, spooky music on again from before. Chester himself without a job, temporarily dreams, dreams, dreams he fight. got it tight. Without a job, typically with that wife. Not to mention having lost his new friend. He called it in Winston, but other than the usual standard staff, there was no way to get into the keeper. of feels the world falling apart. But say goodbye, he doesn't the thing, it's really goodbye. He tries he fails do the usual things. The third day is torture. The novella is in the fire. The whiskey decanter is shattered on the floor. The table is abandoned, He struggles to breathe. He spends most of the day pouring tears on the floor. He is afraid of knives. There is no purpose to anything. Days spent in the square box office waiting to get sacked. days spent in the concrete gray cities, waiting to get stabbed. Lives spent in the void, in meaninglessness, in emptiness, waiting for the end. He drips hot candle wax onto himself just to feel some sensation. He can't stop crying. The despair growing heavier and weighs him down. He needs to get away. He finally takes the knives, plunges them into his chest, groans in pain, is shocked by the sensation. He lies in a pool of blood finally at peace. He will be shortly forgotten by the whole world apart from one loving woman. It really was meaningless. At least he got his happy ending. Last chapter. His work is done. Penny comes home, sees Chester, destroyed. Dead. Covered in blood with two knives beside him. She sighs. Later she will cry. For many days and for many years she will cry. But for now, she is not surprised. It was inevitable. The sadness is great, but she knows he would never have wanted her to feel sad. He loved her too much to want that. The time finally came when he couldn't play the game any longer. She only regretted going on her holiday and leaving him behind, leaving him to fall from the cliff, the dreamscape, into the abyss. She kisses his forehead. Telephones the emergency services. She wonders what's the point of it all. Why any of us even bother?